Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Amy Podcast. I'm Terry Baker. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Frank Overdyke about the important topic of continuous electronic monitoring. For a more general overview of continuous electronic monitoring, listeners are encouraged to listen to Episode 7 of the Amy Podcast. Dr. Frank Overdyke is a professor of anesthesiology whose academic interest is opioid-induced respiratory depression and whose passion is reducing preventable injuries and deaths from opioid-induced respiratory depression through the use of continuous electronic monitoring. Dr. Overdyke is widely published and internationally recognized in this field and has served as the clinical lead for the Amy Foundation's National Coalition to Promote the Continuous Monitoring of Patients on Opioids since 2014. Under his leadership, this coalition has brought together a multidisciplinary team of physicians, nurses, pharmacists, HTM professionals, risk managers, and vendor representatives to share and disseminate best practices and make the business case for implementation of continuous electronic monitoring technology in hospitals. He was recently named the 2018 recipient of the Patient Safety Award from Amy and Becton Dickinson. Welcome to the show, Dr. Overdyke. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, good afternoon, Terry. Happy to be here. Frank, in 2015, you joined the Amy podcast to discuss continuous electronic monitoring, or CEM, which can be heard in Episode 7. But to give our listeners a bit of a background, there are over 45,000 patients who suffer from respiratory compromise on medical and surgical wards every year. Many of these patients die or suffer irreversible brain injury, and several thousands of these relatively healthy patients were electively admitted to the hospital. The literature suggests that opioid-induced respiratory depression accounts for a significant portion of these injuries and deaths, many of which may be prevented through earlier detection if patients had their breathing monitored continuously rather than every several hours, as is the current practice. However, Real-world implementation of continuous respiratory monitoring on wards has been slow. So, Dr. Overdyke, first, why has implementation been slow despite the accumulating evidence that continuous monitoring may reduce morbidity and mortality of respiratory compromise and specifically preventable harm from opioid? All right, Terry. Well, the, I, I think the adoption of continuous electronic monitoring and we're talking about continuous electronic monitoring and continuous respiratory monitoring interchangeably. Our issues are really with continuous respiratory monitoring, but it's electronic. So we'll, we use those interchangeably, CEM or CRM. Okay. Uh, the adoption has been slow, and there are basically four reasons for this. The first barrier, and that one we've almost overcome in the past 10 years, is the admission in medicine that we have a problem with preventable harm to patients from opioids, from pain management. And it is only through the work over the past 10 years of the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation, the Joint Commission, ISMP, and very much AMI, that healthcare institutions now are becoming aware of the harm to patients from opioids, which is 100% preventable. That's the first thing. We're recognizing that we have a problem. Initially, we didn't recognize it, so people didn't need to fix it. Sure. The second has been the concern that continuous electronic monitoring on the ward negatively impacts the nursing workflow. Mm -hmm. To what extent does the implementation of new technology impose a burden on the bedside providers? That's extremely important, something that's been underestimated. It's a valid concern since early adoption of monitors like pulse oximetry at the bedside on the ward did not take the appropriate human factors and workflow of the nurses into consideration. You can't simply put an oximeter 
behind a closed door halfway down the hall and expect the nurse to reliably and consistently respond to alarms and issues with the device. Just like cardiac telemetry beds are centrally monitored, you have to have a plan in the system that allows central notification and an you know, organized hierarchy of alarms with properly set thresholds. You can't use the thresholds you set in the alarms in the ICU because there you have one nurse to every two patients and the patients are critically ill. So that's a different threshold. We needed to adjust the monitors, and I'm using pulse oximeter because everybody understands pulse oximetry, to the setting that they were in and with consideration of the care model. False alarms and alarm fatigue definitely will be the cause of an adoption failure if you are not careful in designing the rollout of the technology with all the best practices that we've learned over the last 10 to 15 years. And if you do that, uh, you'll find that continuous electronic monitoring, CM, will be affected and accepted by frontline providers. The mm -hmm. third barrier to adoption has been the financial cost of bringing in new technology. And historically, that's required a large investment of capital expenditure on equipment and networks and training of staff. But that barrier now is being overcome to a large extent because Vendors understand that the C-suite cannot just write big checks without a careful ROI and a phased expenditure. So the actual cost of CEM for patient admission has been calculated now, and it varies per device, but it amounts to between $20 and $40 per patient. And it's not a cost that's unreasonable in the setting of a hospital bed that for an evening, the hospitals charge three to $5,000. Sure. So it's a relatively small uh, investment and a very, very necessary investment. Lastly, I think there's been some pushback in that the peer-reviewed evidence that continuous res uh, respiratory monitoring is effective in improving outcomes and reducing preventable harm continues to trickle in, but it's not a big body of evidence. And it's important that we have peer-reviewed evidence in this era of what we call evidence-based medicine, an overused term. So patients are found dead in bed in their hospital beds every night in America. Wow. But the numbers are relatively small compared to the total number of patients. So designing a study that's sufficiently powered to detect the difference is hugely expensive and impractical. But the old argument that no one has proven that jumping out of a plane with a parachute is safer than jumping out of a plane without one holds true. It makes sense to monitor our patients on a ward more frequently than every four hours. That four-hour standard, we really don't know where that came from anyway. There's no evidence, if you want to talk about evidence, that monitoring vital signs every four hours is safe or effective. And it dates back to an era when we had higher nurses-to-patient ratios and patients who in the hospitals on average were not as old and as sick as we have them now. Okay. So those are just a number of reasons why there's been pushback, but I think we're, we've overcome, I know we've overcome, a lot of institutions have overcome these and successfully adopted this technology. So what are some of the most effective strategies for building a business case for continuous monitoring? It's a new era. Hospitals and health systems are competing aggressively on quality, and quality metrics are being published and readily available to the consumer. There's a great app that you can get for your phone uh, called the Leapfrog Hospital Safety Grade that grades hospitals on the quality of their services. In other words, what safety initiatives have they taken and what are their outcomes? And so patients can compare hospitals not only on quality of their outcomes, 
but also in the implementation of best safety practices. And continuous respiratory monitoring and transelectronic monitoring is one of those practices. So you have a hospital where you place a patient uh, who requires a morphine PCA on a ward in the back of the hallway with monitoring every four hours, you're likely going to have some issues because you will likely have more resuscitation required, more cardiopulmonary arrest, et cetera. And these are going to be reflected on your quality and safety scores. If you look at the financial equation of hospitals that have implemented what's called surveillance monitoring or continuous monitoring, like Dartmouth-Hitchcock, their ROI is clearly built around having fewer patients require resuscitation and transfer to the ICU. So the cost of preventable errors is huge, typically involves ICU care, which is the most expensive type of care we offer, and payers are not reimbursing us anymore for the cost of unexpected and preventable complications. In this era of bundled payment and outcome-based reimbursement, one patient having the rest on the floor will cost you your profit margin from 50 patients who don't have a complication. Boom. There goes, there goes your margin. Right. That's the financial case for this. Now, there's also legal costs involved in wrongful deaths, et cetera, et cetera. And I've heard hospital administrators in the past say, well, we have insurance that'll cover that. But I can tell you that uh, your insurance premium will go up if your hospital starts to show up on the bottom quartile in some of these patient safety and outcome metrics that are being widely published. Right. So that's, that's the business case for this. Once you've successfully convinced hospital leadership that continuous electronic monitoring is a good idea, what are some of the components for ensuring successful rollout of the technologies and the processes involved? So the rollout of a new technology, any new technology, needs to be done in a very organized and thoughtful way, and CEM is no exception. Now, Every hospital has experience with a new technology in the last 20, 15 to 20 years, and it's called EMR, the sure. Electronic Medical Record. <laughs> and it was mandated, okay? And CEM will be mandated one day, but it's not yet. I wish it was mandated sooner. But hospitals are going the hard way that if you just bring in equipment, it's not going to work. And there have been a lot of deinstalls and a lot of money spent on ineffective processes to roll out this technology. So you need to have a well-organized plan of action driven and championed by a multidisciplinary team of leaders, physicians, nurses, administrators, IT, respiratory therapy. Everybody needs to be on, be a stakeholder, and be a champion for it. It involves education. It involves training, IT support, etc. But it's guaranteed if you don't do this and, and do it right, you're not going to have a successful adoption. But fortunately, there is enough system, hospital systems that have paid their dues and now have successfully done this. If You don't have to reinvent the wheel. If your system decides you want to do it, there's plenty of best practices, both published and white papers out there that you can have to know how to do this. First thing I would do is I would pick a technology and then I'd say my, to my vendor, provide, give me three clinical sites of equal size and scope where this technology is being adopted, embraced, and retained successfully. And then you talk to those clinicians, adopt their best practice. Right. So it's very much like bringing on an EMR. It's a smaller scope. And the, the, the second really important thing is to get buy-in from your frontline providers. You have to have a compelling story why this is necessary. Frontline providers are, are getting more and more requirements for documentation. They're completely overworked. And 
they need to believe that this is the right thing to do for them and their patients. Right. Every hospital I know has had one or more sentinel events of this nature, dead in beds, undetected respiratory and cardiopulmonary arrest. Take the time to teach your providers how to use the technology effectively. And then, most importantly, empower them to take action with those, the alarm system, such as adjusting an alarm threshold to a particular patient when needed, or adding or removing the monitor where appropriate. Empower them to figure out the best way to take care of that patient. The nurses and the, and the people at the front lines, they know how to do that. Don't tie their hands. Don't put them at risk of unreasonable thresholds that make the alarms of alarm fatigue a problem. Give them the facilities and the education to do so. Nothing drives them of the value of technology or the processes around them than knowing that you can save lives. Yes. When you look at facilities that have successfully implemented continuous monitoring, what are some of the most important metrics that have been reported to speak to its success? We're really advocating continuous monitoring for two reasons. The first is to eliminate dead in beds. This should be intolerable in 2018 that we walk into a patient's room and find them not breathing and or pulseless. The second is that it, it helps us, and the evidence is accumulating for this, earlier detection of decompensation so we can rescue a patient at an, or we can intervene earlier. We're not going to stamp out disease processes and pathology and things like But sepsis is a great example. A respiratory pattern will betray a patient going into sepsis early, just up there as much as lactic acid or some of these other uh, uh, hypotension. And if we can get these patients detected earlier, that would be a great way. So metrics, I would say the first thing is sentinel events. These dead in beds, they're reduced to zero. Mm -hmm. Okay. You will not find none of these places that have published about this say, well, we still had you know, three or four people who were found dead in bed. doesn't happen anymore. So no. that's important. Now, is it important in a numerical standpoint? Well, if it's your loved one or family member, yes, it's, sure. it, it's important. But from an epidemiologic standpoint, maybe not. But preventing death and hypoxic injury is a devastating tragedy, for not just for the patient and their family, but for providers as well. It's a very traumatic thing. I've known hundreds of providers who've gone through this, and it can basically ruin your career or ruin the love you have for what you do. Don't subject your caregivers to this trauma. Give them the tools to prevent something like this uh, happening. That's important. So on the earlier recognition, I've talked about sepsis a little bit. I've talked certainly about opioid-induced respiratory depression. Uh, the trends in the literature, and these are trends, suggest rescue events are more effective and ICU transfers are fewer. That not only makes sense that it's safer, but it, it's a more effective and cheaper way to take care of patients. The other metric, of course, that you should ask of any place you go to check out is what is your retention of the technology by frontline front providers? Nothing speaks more strongly about the value of CM than a provider who refuses to work without it. And that's coming a long way yeah. from the time when providers said they won't work with it. So they not only have they changed their opinion on it, but they're become advocates of it, sure. strong advocates. In what ways does the technology surrounding continuous monitoring need to evolve? So it's divided into two categories. First of all, technically, there's two areas that need to improve. The sensors need to become smaller, less invasive, and more reliable. Okay, We need basically wireless bodyboard sensors. We need no wires tethering the patient to somewhere. That's the only way that the patient will tolerate them continuously. 
The second thing which we really need to do is we need to look at the patterns and trends that we see in the vital signs when we have continuous data. And we need to design smart algorithms around this. I find it amazing that we see driverless cars in the news and hear about all this AI work applied to different industries and, and you know, uh, all these technologies, but we're still triggering an alarm on a monitor off a single value threshold, which is a concept that is so outdated and makes no medical sense. It's because 40 years ago, that's all we could do, but we're mm-hmm. still doing it and we have to stop. Our bodies don't work that way. You have to be able to customize the alarm to the patient, the patient's current condition, the patient's likely future condition. That's a smart alarm that uses patterns and trends. So those are two technical innovations that need to happen. In a system sense, continuous monitoring needs to become a continuum. In other words, continuous monitoring needs to follow the patient out of the hospital and home. And it'll do so once we get body-borne sensors that transmit unobtrusively, continually. Then we can gather the data to know when, not when the patients are sick, but when they're healthy or when they are, what their baseline is. And that'll make the detection of deterioration so much better. Again, that relies to some degree on that better technology. What do you hope the future holds for continuous electronic monitoring? What will it take to make the ideal future state a reality? Okay. Well, first let's say what the ideal future looks like. To me, it it would be the following. It would have, we'd have 100% recognition that continuous vital sign monitoring or electronic monitoring of all patients in the hospital is necessary for safe and effective treatment. Recognition that we need it. 100% acceptance by frontline providers that CEM is actually in their best interest and in the patient's best interest and that it prevents preventable harm as well as helps them detect deterioration early. Then I'd like Acceptance that every patient on a ward needs to be continually monitored, not just the patients who falls into the high-risk category that we determine from some algorithm or from pre-existing history. Every patient. There are patients who are going in for elective surgery, having a relatively small, minor procedure, but painful procedure, who are not coming out of the hospital. That needs to stop. Body-borne sensors, I hope. We'll, uh, we need to design that they're highly sensitive, means that we have very few false negative alarms for meaningful deterioration, but they have low false alarm rates, so low false positive alarm rates. You'll never get a monitor that has a zero false positive alarm rate because that physiologically is impossible for anything, be it on a plane or a, bo- a human body or so. But we can bring those down. We can make sure they're, they're great sensors. And then the future is we have zero death and anoxic brain injury from unrecognized patient deterioration. Zero. The APSF 10 years ago said we should have zero tolerance to finding someone dead in bed. And we will get there. Uh, We will get there. The path may be a little uh, asymptotic, but we'll get there. We still have the steepest part of the curve to go in terms of adoption, but we've made great progress. For example, patient-controlled analgesia. Most hospitals that score highly on both outcomes and patient safety scores have continuous monitoring of respiration on patients on PCA. They use either oximetry or capnography or bioimpedance. Any of those mechanisms, any of those technologies will work. Uh, Piezoelectric will work as well. There's the monitors that go underneath the bed. But for the most part, these 
these uh, technologies will help you get to that part of no pre uh, preventable deaths. Um, but PCA is a great example. So if I was a patient, when I will be a patient, not if I was a patient, I will, and I get a PCA, I need to be on continuous monitoring. It, plain and simple. And I will not go to a place that does anything less. Sure. You still need to come over, overcome that temptation to triage patients. In my mind, it's very simple. All patients deserve to be continually monitored. Our responsibility is not to take care of most of our patients, take care of all of our patients. So that's the future I hope we'll get here soon. Do you have any thoughts on what it'll take for us to uh, make it there? I'm not a prognosticator. I, uh, <laughs> people always say, how long do I have to live? Doctors are not, it shouldn't be in the business of prognosticating. We should be in the business of diagnosing and treating. And, and on this stage, I'm going to say the same thing. I think uh, what I like is that I can now, as a patient, pick a place that shares this philosophy. I think uh, we have a long way to go. I think commercial aviation is a great example of a high-reliability industry. We all get on a plane without thinking twice about whether we're going to get to our destination. I'd love to think that we walk into a hospital and we wouldn't think twice about having preventable harm, uh, wrong site surgery, surgical infection, deaths from opioids, these kind of things. We need to get there. We've come a long way since 2000, but uh, there's still a ways to go. Well, Dr. Overdyke, thank you for joining us today to discuss this important topic. We really appreciate your insights. Oh, you're welcome. My, my pleasure, Terry. Hopefully it's uh, interesting and, and valuable to people. I'm sure it will be. And we'd like to thank you, our listener, for joining us for this episode of the Amy Podcast. Please stop by our website, aami.org, to learn more about this topic and many others. For this episode of the Amy Podcast, I'm Terry Baker.